Welcome to Page, the podcast where writers dissect a single page of their book. I'm your host, Abby Hollick, and each week I'll be speaking to a different best-selling memoirist or non-fiction writer about their most frank, moving or hilarious page. I pick the standout page that examines a breakthrough moment and invite the author to dig deeper. Along the way, we learn a thing or two about how to survive and cope with whatever life flings at us. Catelyn Moran is an author and scriptwriter who first became a columnist at The Times at the age of 18. She wrote the wildly successful feminist manifesto, How to Be a Woman, which won Book of the Year in 2011, and went on to write How to Build a Girl, which was turned into a film last year. Famous for her outrageous sense of humour, Catelyn has a knack for transforming the pain of being a woman into something joyful you can cackle about with your mates. Whether discussing masturbation, birth or the patriarchy, her work is shot through with humour. Jokes that can make you wince and belly laugh at the same time, but also inspire activism and continue the fight for gender equality. Her latest memoir, More Than a Woman, is a guide to growing older and a celebration of the middle-aged women who run the to-do lists, care for the teenagers and basically get shit done. The thorny issue of middle age, from boring sex to the eye-watering cost of childcare, rarely gets a mention in books and on our screens. But in true Catelyn style, she lifts the lid on how damn tiring it is to be a woman in your 40s, but also how liberating it is to care less. Catelyn, welcome to Paige. Thank you so much for coming on. Hello, my absolute pleasure. I feel totally bigged up after that intro. I shall now absolutely disappoint you every moment that I'm speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Stop it. So I picked page 204 of More Than a Woman. I know I could have chosen something lighter, but I think you've done such a remarkable and generous thing for discussing the pain of feeling helpless as a parent. So if you could please read page 204. Yeah, it's not big on laughs, this one. This is where I'm just trying to convey some very important information to some people who really need it, and that is the parents of children with an eating disorder. The biggest problem when you have a child with an eating disorder is this. Every tactic you have ever used in parenting is now useless. Worse than that, it's wrong. You can't get through it on instinct or logic or emotional appeals or punishments or anecdotes or rewards. Everything you have used since the day they were born. No, what you need urgently to do is forget about being a parent and become a mental health professional instead. Because there are very specific things you should and shouldn't do. Specific words and phrases you must employ accurately without deviation or improvisation. There is a script you must follow which over time, and if adhered to, can effect what feels like a miraculous change. Each word, said in the right tone, undoing some small patch of anxiety and horror in your child's head. There are things you can say before a meal, during a meal, after a meal, on the way to a hospital appointment and when they cannot sleep, which do the thing you so desperately want to make you seem to your child as if you are a calm, wise, endlessly loving person who is gently leading them somewhere safe, where all this will one day be over. 
Unfortunately, at this time, I do not know these words. I have not yet found the books or received the advice in which they reside. Excellent. Thank you so much. So I wanted to start with asking um, how old your daughter was when she developed an eating disorder and when you first understood that that was what it was, because it sounds like it's a journey to even get to the point that you understand that, can name it and can voice it. Yes. Well, she was 11, which is very young to develop an eating disorder. She was, um, as she would proudly say, uh, one of the youngest in her eating disorder unit. She had a very dark humour throughout the whole thing, which was, uh, which was very useful. But yeah, the problem with a child that develops an eating disorder or any kind of mental illness is I think a lot of parents have this thought or belief that you'd, you'd kind of know if you were the kind of person who was going to have a child who had a mental illness. Like you just, you'd kind of know when you were pregnant or when you had the baby or as they were growing up. It'd be like, you just know if you were the kind of person who was going to have a child who had that kind of problem, um, which is obviously a complete madness and, and one of the sort of the madnesses that you have as a parent. I don't know any parent who's got a child with an eating disorder or a severe mental illness that wasn't really surprised. That's the main first problem that you have when you start to realise that this is the problem your child has. Because first of all, no parenting book, no pregnancy book will ever mention this. No one ever goes, hey, you might have a child who one day, 14 years later, will repeatedly try and kill itself or will not eat. Like that's just never mentioned. We don't talk about that. And secondly, there is still so much societal shame attached to having a child with mental illness. There are still huge trenches of people who would believe that it must be your fault. You made your child mentally ill. It's your fault. Um, that a huge part of your journey will be working out how you feel about yourself and learning that it was not your fault and getting rid of the terrible guilt and shame, which will get in the way of you being able to help your child until you've resolved that. Yeah, so... I mean, I, my sister had um, struggled for many years with anorexia and bulimia. And I remember that tactic of just endless conversations around mealtimes where someone would say, like, a car needs fuel to run and a body <laughs> needs yeah. food. And we, 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 we would shout at her. And so you're very clear on all these parenting tactics that we've used. I mean, my only parenting tactic is to have a snack on me at all times. I couldn't imagine if <laughs> suddenly the snack was rejected because snacks are for everything, every emotion. Such a huge, um, it sounds a bit weird, but such a huge statement to say no to food. How, how did you react at first? Well, that that's part of, I mean, eating disorders still aren't fully understood this was one of the big shocks. So when she was she was 11, when we first realised there was a problem and it took quite a lot on both mine and my husband's half, first of all, to approach medical professionals because we had this whole thing of like, don't medicalise it, you know, which again is a very common thing for parents to go through. Like it might just be a phase. As soon as you medicalise it and give it a name, then she will think she is this illness. So let's see if we can cope with it ourselves and nip it in the bud. You'll hear all these phrases from parents who've got the same problem. But when we finally did get her to the hospital to go and see a specialist, which took three attempts on her behalf as well, because the hospital looked so terrifying. And she was such a little girl that when we got to the doors of the hospital, the first two times, she just turned around and walked away. And was like, I can't go in there because there were people with cancer outside smoking. And it was a grown up place full of death. And if you're an 11 year old girl, who's very confused about yourself. You do not want to go in that building. It just suddenly seems like such a big adult game to be playing. 
I mean, I could rant forever about how we need to change the architecture in, in sort of NHS buildings uh, until the cows come home, but that's another subject. But when we finally got her in there, I was like, right, okay, I'm in do mode now. Tell me everything. Experts, tell me what this is. Tell me how she's got it, why she's got it, what we can do to make it better, and when she's going to be better. Give me all the facts. I'm ready now. This is it. We're going to do this. And they don't tell you outright, but you learn this over the years that you'll spend in the system, uh, that no one can sit you down and go, this is why your daughter has an eating disorder. This is what will happen. And this is when it will end. Like They, they don't know there's various theories, there's various reasons, um, but you never get the satisfying thing that you would if you were, you know, if you had, I don't know, contracted a virus. If your child had contracted a virus, you'd go, yes, it must be when she went to that dirty swimming pool and she's contracted this virus. And these are the things we'll treat her with. And this is how long it will last. And this is your prognosis uh, a mental illness is a, a deeply dissatisfying experience from beginning to end because you don't know why it's happened and you know as I say in the reading like kind of every tactic you've ever used to help your child when they're sad because a child with an eating disorder underneath it all is anxious and depressed and they're so anxious and depressed that it has now metastasized into this new thing an eating disorder and when your child is sad, it's your instinct from day one. You you feed them. The baby cries. You offer the breast. You give it a bottle. The toddler mm. is sad. You comfort it and you have some chocolate to make them feel better. When that is suddenly removed, you start seeing what a huge part of society and our emotional support systems food is and what a powerful thing it is when a child refuses it. And part of what we understand about an eating disorder is that is part of the appeal for a child that has an eating disorder. It's being able to say no. It's being able to reject you. And you know your child is doing that to you and your child knows it's doing it to you. Mm. And so now you're in a position of knowing that your child is in some way at war with you, at which point you will probably have a nervous breakdown. <laughs> mm. It sounds to me, just from what what you say in the section and what you say in the book that so much acceptance needs to take place because it's almost like a smoke screen to smoke screen to obsess over the why 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 if the professionals say you won't get an answer necessarily yes. or like you said it won't be this satisfying that they went to the swimming pool and that's how they caught the virus there's going to still be mystery surrounding it right Absolutely. And I'm very to-do lists can do. Like, you know, as soon as I know there's a problem, Crack right, on. Let, let's understand it. Exactly. Yeah, very much. Which I think most mums and middle-aged women will relate to. You're like, okay, you, you know, you do feel like, you know, you're the SAS and you've been dropped below enemy lines and you've got 20 minutes to complete the mission and you're going to do it incredibly effectively. That's how <laughs> I feel about every aspect of parenting. <laughs> that, that's how things get I love, Like, I love the bit when you said it'll be over by Christmas. I, yes. I can just so imagine like, well, okay, we're in October, so we've got a few months of this but yeah, yeah totally. definitely everything is at speed yeah and previously in everything that you have done in parenting that has worked you know this was my first parenting failure you know not being able to resolve something quickly you know in the end it took her nearly five years and you know I'm really happy to say you know she is totally recovered now totally well and I know what the statistics are. I'm presuming there's a lot of people who will listen to this who, who are dealing with a child with an eating disorder. And we all know what the statistics are on the amount of children that recover uh, totally, the amount of children that recover partially and the amount of children who don't recover at all. You know, we don't need to go over those. But I found that when my daughter was in the depths of her illness, I couldn't find a single positive story 
about it. Even the memoirs that were written by former anorexia and bulimia sufferers that had recovered, there would sort of be the end of the book and then there would be a later chapter that had been tacked on going, unfortunately, since I wrote this book, I've had a relapse. I literally couldn't find a single positive story. And so that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write about it, because a third of children or sufferers from this will recover entirely. And I couldn't find a single story that, that told that story. So, that, you know, that's one of the reasons I wanted to write it. But since wow. she's recovered, very interestingly, she's become my spy in the House of Eating Disorders. And she, mm. she, sort of, she sort of turned informer on the eating disorder world. And one of the most interesting things she said was that she heard about eating disorders at the age of nine. She heard uh, anorexia at the age of nine. And she said, at the time, I registered what someone was saying and I went, that's going to be useful to me later. That sounds like an interesting thing that I think might be useful to me later. So your children are hearing about this stuff far earlier than you think. I thought we wouldn't have to, you know, I'd set my talking about eating disorders clock and uh, uh, to maybe sort of 13, 14. Nah, you know, you know, as with so many of these other things, drugs, pornography, it's like eight, nine, ten. That's when they're hearing about this Mm. stuff. Well, my sister's fully recovered too, and I want to share a positive story as well because I know we were always told she never would because it had been too many years. It was over a decade or so, and I can't remember what, I don't know what's sort of said now, but it was very much once you've had it for this many years, you can never kind of rewire the brain. And that was wonderful to see that that was not her story. But oh my gosh, yeah, also, five to seven years is what they tell you that you've got sort of like that. You, if you're recovered within five to seven years, you should be okay. And then after that, it starts to get dicey. Yeah, yeah. Well, how was it um, for you? I wondered. Like, I'd love to ask you if it's okay. Mm, like, how it was mm. for you being the sister of someone with it? Because I was very aware. Like, you know, at the time it was all hands on board to to save our younger daughter who was, you know, repeatedly making attempts on her life and was like so palpably distressed at all times. But we yeah. were very aware that there was another girl in our house that we couldn't give the time and attention to. And we're now having to deal with her unhappiness and sadness and sort of the mm. years of not being able to help her. And I wonder what it was like for you at the time. Like, were you resentful of, of your sister's illness? Did you hate her? Yeah, yeah, it's a good question. And it's something I do think about a lot because reading your book, I kept thinking, but how's the other sister? How's the other sister? Which is interesting. I think there's the point when you're at the Royal Free and you just mentioned that your other daughter's at school. And I Mm. really stayed with her in that school. Obviously, once I knew your daughter was better, it's not that you don't think about the the sick person, but I didn't, I could see, it's funny how, yeah, her her story and how she is, um, I thought about a lot because obviously I, I certainly relate to that. And you do feel, well, I can't speak for anyone else, but I know that I did feel, how can my petty little problem about how my friend was a bit mean to me at break time and how I think I'm bit a bit shit at maths, like how, how can that mean anything? Because I'm not suicidal. Yes. So you, you develop... Um, you have a dysregulated, I guess, relationship with your own pain and your own emotions. Like I internalized this idea that it didn't matter as much. And I still think I suffer with this idea of kind of mental health hierarchy. Like if you've just had a bad day, come on, that's not bad. Other people have, you suffer from depression. And so your low mood today, it's not, it's not that big, right? And, and you know what, that doesn't work. No. Um, because well, your pain is only your pain and you're only in your body and you're only feeling your feelings. So I've definitely in adulthood had to look at that. And I did feel, yeah, I felt like 
at times, why do you get all the attention? Why do you take yes. up all the space? And um, sometimes, I don't know if you did this, but I think sometimes my parents wanted it to be me that had done something wrong because then it would be okay. And so I got blamed for things that I hadn't done because oh. then it would be easier because if it's if it's Abby, we could work this out. Whereas if it's my sister, we've got to go into this whole difficult territory we don't understand. So it's it's very complicated and it does affect everyone. Yeah. And you're, you know, it's, it's your teenage years, like kind of, and you're, you're, you're basically, I mean, I was very aware my other daughter, my, my well daughter was basically living in a house on fire, like, you know, that she would come home from school and, you know, there would be the police at the door because my youngest daughter had been screaming so much that she didn't want to eat that the police had been called like kind of, mm. and it was so not the teenage years I'd wanted for them. I had a really awful teenage years. We were very poor. My parents were not very good parents. I was very miserable and depressed. And I'd, you know, from the moment we decided we wanted children, I was like, I'm going to give my kids the best teenage years ever. They're just going to have a lovely bedroom each and they'll go to lovely parties and I'll be such a lovely mum and we'll just be this happy family that'll be round a table playing boggle and yeah. we'll just be the safest and loveliest family ever. And then you just cut to a scene where like, one of your children is repeatedly being admitted to A&E and the other one is just walking around the house like a sad ghost and they just need a hug. There would be nights where I'd be with my youngest daughter, I'd be, have, she couldn't sleep, so I'd sort of get into bed with her and be sort of talking her down or bandaging her arms. And then my, my other daughter would sort of knock on the door and come into the bedroom and want to talk about her day at school. And I'd just have to, with my eyes, just sort of signal, no, don't come in here, don't come and talk about yourself. Like, I'm, I'm putting a bandage on now, you've got to go. And those are heartbreaking moments of parenting. And the fact that you've been you've been that girl in that situation is, um, yeah. I mean, everybody, you know, a whole family gets an eating disorder. It's it's not just the the patient, the person with the name tag in the hospital. A whole family yeah. gets an eating disorder. Yeah, I think it's really important to say at this point for anyone who doesn't realise your daughter really wants you to talk about this, doesn't she, and write about this because. I don't know, I've, I feel a safety in asking these questions with you because I've heard you say that, so I just want to... Um, oh, gosh, yes. No, I should have said, like, yes, so, so no yeah. one's worrying that I'm kind of, yeah, sneakily doing this behind her back and uh, exploiting her for cash. No, she was... No, she was we know you fun. would never do that, but it was so... <laughs> well, I don't know. So, um, I think that's such an extraordinary... <laughs> How has she reacted to the... Well, has the whole family reacted to the book being out, That you know, in that, that chapter being now, everyone having read it? Well, it's it's a twofold thing. First of all, she told me to write about it because, as as she pointed out, like her generation don't have any stigma about mental health. Like they talk about it, you know, on social media. They talk to each other about it. They're very open about men. They see no difference between a child with mental ill health and a child with childhood cancer. Like they're just it's an illness that they're going through. It. It's my generation that was brought up with this stigma around mental uh, mental illness and eating disorders, and we don't talk about it, but we're the parents of these children. The rates of mental illness and eating disorders are going through the roof. So statistically, you're probably quite likely to be dealing with a child who, who has one of these disorders by the time they hit their teens, and we don't know how to talk about it. And the thing you learn, the first thing you learn with, with astonishment and dismay and horror when you have a child with who's diagnosed with a mental illness is you're the doctor. Like 99% of all of the, the care and help and healing they're going to get is from you. It's not like they go into hospital and have like blood transfusions and an operation. And they come out and they're well, like you would with a physical illness. You'll see someone at the hospital maybe once a week, maybe twice a week if you're lucky, after being on a waiting list for a year and a half. And then the rest of it is down to you. So 
So you're the doctor. So so she was like, you've got to talk to the parents who are doing this because you're making so many mistakes, your generation. You don't know how to talk about it. We can see you're embarrassed before you even say mental illness. And that makes us feel terrible. So you please write about this so you can help your generation help our generation. So that was a very firm uh, and she put massive boundaries. There's so much stuff I do not talk about in the book because she was like, I don't want you to put that in. I don't want you to put that in. Mm-hmm. And she, she went through it with with her own pencil and sort of decided exactly what she had total control of telling the story she wanted to mm-hmm. tell. But then the second part about how they reacted to it being in a book, both my children, is that my children will never read anything I write ever. <laughs> and if they just... <laughs> Don't want to know. You know, I queered my own pitch when the first book I wrote opens with me masturbating and no child in the world wants to read a book where they're reading about mummy masturbating and and they're, they're they so were out from that in their not reading. Onwards. Yes, exactly. Yeah, they're out. It's That's it. it, will, it I'm dead to them. And uh, <laughs> as proven by my fourth book, the dedication at the front is to my daughters. If you read this dedication, I will give you my credit card and the PIN number and you can buy whatever you want. My third book, Moranthology, has that as the dedication at the front. They have still not yet come to me and gone, hey, we've just read this dedication. Give us your credit card and your PIN number. So that's absolute proof they do not read anything that I write. So, um, so I'm in very way, on board with that. That me. sounds very healthy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so. You know, you can know too much about your parents, really. You know, if I, if my mother, if my mother had written a book about masturbation, <laughs> I would just, sim- I would be so busy burning every copy of it that existed that I would not have a job myself. Oh dear. So, well, I, I just want to pick up on that point around how we struggle with talking about mental illness. When you really looked into that, because I can feel that uncomfortability and and shame around it and it's just fascinating to think about I mean would you have heard the words mental health in your childhood yes uh in a kind of 70s 80s way so my mother had worked for a while as like a I'm not quite sure in which capacity but a a thunderously unqualified one in a mental hospital for a while and so she and my father would just talk about people who were mental and people who were crazy and in a not very loving or caring way. And they both had a theory that you can catch it. They'd be like, yeah, madness, <laughs> it's catching. They were hippies. They smoked a lot of marijuana. So their whole thing was like, yeah, if you know anyone who's mental, you better stay away from them or else you'll get it too. So a profoundly unhelpful uh, grounding in uh, the issues of mental illness. Yes. So I was not prepared for it at all <laughs> when it when it happened to my children. And also you do just, you know, parenthood is a, an act of grand delusion, isn't it? Mm. Really, when you think about having children, you're just convinced you're going to be an amazing parent and you can that you'll be great at it for life. You don't realise how long it takes. Like there's a bit in More Than a Woman where I'm talking about how long just childhood is. And I just start writing the word long and then I put about 50 O's. So it's an entire paragraph. It is long. And then I'm like, this is just one paragraph. It's taking you three seconds to read this word long. Parenthood goes on for 20 years minimum. <laughs> it's so oh long. My God, it takes it. so long. But when we get pregnant and when we start thinking of family, we, we no parent ever truly knows what they're signing up to when they get pregnant or when they have a child. You know, it's all a massive surprise. And then when something like mental illness, which we're just only at the very beginnings of understanding or being able to cope, comes along, you realise how thunderously unqualified you are. When I wrote about this in, in More Than a Woman, we serialised the extract about eating disorders in The Times, where I'm a columnist, and I had the greatest response to that of anything that I've ever written, ever. And I went to a sex club with Lady Gaga, but this was like, 
off the and I still now am mm. having two or three Zooms a week with the most desperate parents who contacted me going, this is happening to my child, please help me. Please give me some advice about how I should be thinking about this and dealing with it. And it's been really interesting. I've noticed that there is, I've not seen this written anywhere, but I've noticed there's a certain type of parent who is more likely to have problems with a child with mental illness or an eating disorder. And it's it's quite a confident family. It's quite a high achieving family. It's a very mm-hmm. verbal family. And it's often a family that's quite bantery and, you know, quite sarcastic, making jokes about each other and stuff, mm-hmm. which is all great. Family. You, yeah, I'm really not surprised. I Honestly, it's definitely a type. Mm-hmm. And the problem with that family dynamic is that when your child hits adolescence, we still tend to be bantery with our children. But a teenager cannot deal with sarcasm and banter or irony, like suddenly commenting on how they look or what they're doing or you're turning into a teenager or why are you wearing that big hoodie all day? Like you're covering yourself up. You look so gloomy in the corner. Like any of these kind of comments, they can't handle it. It's like a a layer of skin has been removed. They don't want to be looked at. They don't want to be commented on. They can't be the target of fun anymore. Even if that's always been the family thing everybody takes the piss out of each other Mm. you really can't take the piss out of teenagers you just have to leave them alone and so one of the sort of first bits of advice I I give parents is like kind of try to stop being funny around your kids when they hit adolescence it actually Mm. it seems really counterintuitive particularly for me as someone who loves to making the jokes all day long Mm. but they don't have the tools to handle sarcasm they can't they are so inexperienced any jokes you're making about them becoming an adult just merely reminds them that they know nothing about being adult and sort of re-terrifies them about the whole process of crossing this really busy road from childhood to adulthood, this motorway, which is adolescence with cars coming both ways that are going to hit you. And you just need to stop being a fun mum or a clever mum or a bantery mum or dad. And you just need to turn into quite a dull sitcom mum from the 70s or 80s who just simply puts jugs of Bisto on the table and tells everybody (laughs) that they're lovely. You just need to kind of walk around not even really saying stuff. You just sort of moo at people supportively, like kind of just forget about being clever for four or five years. Don't be funny. Don't have a personality. Just moo gently around your children. That really seems to be a much safer option. Oh, wow. Interesting. I mean, as you say, we don't know how to parent, let alone how to become mental health professionals. I just want to get into that script that you learn, what you say before the meal, during the meal, after the meal. And for anyone listening, as, as you say, there's such enormous reaction to this uh, chapter in particular when it was serialised in the Times. What People out there who are struggling, who have no idea where to turn, what's the book or the number to call? I mean, I, yeah, yes. what, what did you learn? Well, uh, from having... So, so here's... I will be telling people who don't know about this new information. For the people who have gone through this or are going through this, you'll feel a weary comfort that someone's going, yep, this is what it's like for everybody. Even if you're a semi-famous journalist with cash, uh, you will approach the NHS. People will say things like, well, we don't know what journey your daughter's going on. We'll just have to see how it goes. You will gradually find out that that the help that you actually need will be in about a year or 18 months because that's how long the waiting lists are and in the meantime you've just got to try and figure it out yourself and the two things that I found the most useful were first of all contacting the uh, organisation BEAT which is an organisation that supports people with eating disorders and their families 
and you can ring them up and talk to them and just tell them what's going on and they can give you advice very specifically. Beat will be able to talk to you for hours if you need to on the phone, whereas if you go into a doctor's surgery, they are, again, in a burning building full of terrible emergencies. You will talk to them for 10 or 20 minutes if you're lucky, that's it. So Beat will talk to you for as long as you need to. There's a book by Eva Musby, which is called Anorexia and Other Eating Disorders, How to Help Your Child Eat Well and Be Well. And she is a mother of a daughter that has suffered from both anorexia and bulimia. And she's just written her guide to how she learned to communicate with her daughter. And that was that was the biggest single breakthrough we had with our daughter because she writes scripts. She literally writes scripts of how you deal with each situation. So how to get them to the table, how to get them through a meal, uh, how to then watch them to make sure they're not going to the toilet and throwing up afterwards, how to help them get to sleep. All these things that are things that you sort of went through with babies and toddlers you're having to do again, but with someone who's fully adult and very angry at you. And she gives you scripts. And anyone who's gone through this will know that an eating disorder is a very malign, very clever voice in your child's head. Mm. It, there is like two people in your child's head, them and this eating disorder. And the eating disorder hates you as a parent because you're trying to kill the eating disorder. And the eating disorder wants to argue with you constantly. And the eating disorder is constantly on alert for you to say something slightly wrong so that it can focus on that wrong word you just said with all its fury and scream at you for hours and hours and hours and use this argument as a distraction from doing the thing you need to do, which is eat this food that is on the plate in front of you. So Eva Musby has written scripts of what you say when you're sitting down and trying to get your child to eat, how you get them to the table in the first place, how you deal with them trying to hide food up their sleeve, how you deal when they try and run away from the table, and you literally use these scripts word for word. And the first big breakthrough we had with my daughter, she'd run away from the table, she'd gone into the front room, she'd put her hoodie up, she was sort of in a sad, angry ball on the sofa, and I went away and looked in the Eva Musby book what I should do in this situation, and I came back and I went, darling, do you need to hear that we know that it's really difficult for you to eat right now, but we love you and we're going to sit with you all the way through this and we love you and however long it takes, we're with you. And it was miraculous. She took down her hood and started crying and immediately softened up and then hugged us and went, yes, that is what I need to hear. And I was staggered because I thought that obviously she knew that we loved her and obviously we were going to sit with her for as long as it took and obviously we knew it was difficult. But saying those three things in that order at that time was the exact key into the the lock that she had locked against us. She just literally had to hear those three things in that sequence. And so, yes, that book I have found to be miraculous because it gives you a script. It stops you getting into those arguments that go on for hours. It just allows you to get to the heart of the matter, which is you need to eat this, which is, and you know, dealing with a child with an eating disorder is four or five years of just saying the words, come on, you need to eat this. God, I can really hear how helpful that script would be because it's not instinctive. No. You wouldn't, even though, of course, you're thinking, I know that I love you. That's not, that's not where you are when you're in the details of the food and the meal and what you're trying to, your objective, what you're trying to get out of making her eat. Well, also, um, it seems so basic and so interesting, especially if you are in a, a clever, verbose family. It was really interesting when you were saying that, like, sort of, you would all be sitting around the table going, it's fuel for the car, ta 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 Like, that's... Like I, I called them the TED Talks, like, you know, until we learn better, we would just sit and TED Talk our daughter about nutrition and, you know, iron. And let's talk about magnesium today and how you'd be very short on it if you haven't eaten for three days and sleep so important. And you're just all using your cleverness 
to talk to this very sad, depressed person, and like that, or being like, a, or being like a top lawyer, like I know I can win this case with my I'll clever. filibuster this, yes, yeah. until she's finally going to eat that sausage. And I go through a list of all of the parenting things that work in every other aspect of parenting that don't work when you're dealing with an eating disorder. So bribery, like kind of, come on, eat this, and then we can go to the zoo. That will not work. Getting angry, like, come on, you just need to eat. Come on, don't be silly. You're making everybody so upset. That will not work. The TED Talk, magnesium, that will not work. Crying. There was a point where, you know, for a long time I was like, I'm not going to show I'm upset by this because I'm the adult and she's the child and ta-ta-ta-ta. And then one day I was like, well, maybe she just needs to know that this is upsetting me. Maybe if, you know, she loves me, maybe if she sees how much this is making me suffer, it'll be like I'm Jesus and like I'm on the cross suffering and she's mankind and she'll realise what she's done to lovely mum Jesus and that will inspire her to eat. Yeah, that didn't work either. And none of these, everything you've ever done, you know, punishment, no, your child is already punishing itself. Bribery, reason, none of these things work. You've just got to stick to this script of there is a job we have to do. We're here to support you. We absolutely love you. And, you know, the corollary of that is that really for the time, for the amount of time that your child has an eating disorder, you as the adult can't really have emotions. You just need to do that thing that Marge Simpson talks about where you take all your emotions and push them down into a big ball in the bottom of your stomach and just leave them there. <laughs> you cannot have an emotional reaction around a child as this because they are all emotional reaction. There's a really brilliant at the beginning of like your child's eating disorder journey that some medical profession at some point will show you a picture of an iceberg and they'll go, the bit of the iceberg that you can see above the water, that's the eating disorder. Underneath it is this five times bigger, huger problem, which is anxiety and depression. And the thing that I realised with eating disorders and self-harm, uh, which often go hand in hand, um, you know, or getting multiple piercings or tattoos or any of these things, is that your child, those are still communications. All of those things are your child still talking to you, but physically and the reason they've started to do it physically now and not eating and cutting themselves up and hurting themselves is because they can't say what they feel anymore. And your job as a parent is to try and go back a couple of steps so that they can start talking about how they feel again. And they don't need to physically show you. They don't need to communicate with you with hunger and raises anymore. They can start using words again. And a lot of it, because my daughter is now turned informer on this world, is that they become so embarrassed about having to say every day, I feel sad, I feel anxious. Having to say it 50 or 60 times a day because they're so constantly depressed and anxious that they're just like, if I'm permanently ill, if I have bandages on my arms, if I have a tube up my nose, then you know that my I'm constantly upset. I'm constantly unhappy. That was what she meant when she said when she heard about eating disorders being useful when she was nine. She was like, you know, if I had... NG tubes up my nose, if I had bandages on my arms, everyone would know that I am constantly anxious and depressed. Like kind of that will be useful to me. And once you start understanding the the use like anorexia and eating disorders, self-harm, they're like every other addiction. Like at the beginning, they seem like a solution to a problem. And then they become even bigger than the original problem. So initially, not eating is useful to your child. It's saying, I have a problem. Then it becomes the bigger problem but you need to try and row it back and get to the point where you can constantly talk to them about how unhappy they are, how they feel. I mean, the root of what you're saying makes me um, 
kind of makes me think how even if you don't have a child with an eating disorder or a mental health issue, that when someone is unhappy, even with a tiny child, when they've said they've had a bad day, it's so easy to go, no, you didn't. (laughs) And I'm like, if I came home and told my partner my day was awful and he didn't believe me, it would be, adults don't tend to do that to each other. But with with children, is it because we just desperately can't make that leap in our brains like not not the child that I love so much you can't have had a bad day at school and that person was mean to you in the playground that that just can't have been like maybe maybe you misunderstood and why didn't you speak to that yeah the blame can quickly happen I I know I've caught myself with my kids saying well I don't think the teacher I've often kind of gone on the side of the teacher well I, I actually I don't think the teacher meant that and remember that they're stressed as well and and it's kind of this not believing Totally. It's funny, you've had exactly the same thought journey as I have too. And it was exactly the same thing, realising a lot of the stuff I was saying to my kids, like, oh, no, it isn't, or cheer up or whatever. Exactly that. If if I said I was upset and my partner went, no, you're not, cheer up, or, or it didn't happen, I'd be incandescent. So that's a really useful thought to have in your head at all times. If I was parenting me right now, would I be furious? If another adult talked to me like this in the way that I'm talking to my child, would that make me really furious? Yeah, it would. But then, as the, the teenagers say now, then you start deeping the issue. And this is a new a new phrase oh. for thinking about something deeply. You start deeping it. And you start realising that when you say things like, oh, well, maybe the teacher had a bad day and stuff. So much of parenting when you're talking to your child is you're basically trying to teach them your thought process and your emotional process because that's what's got you to where you are so far. You presume it must work because you're not dead. So you're you're basically teaching them how you see the world and your coping method. And that's when you start deeping it and realising you probably need a lot of therapy because what are you doing a lot of the time when you feel sad? You're telling yourself, oh, it doesn't matter or, oh, it's you that screwed up or, oh, you have misunderstood the situation. Again, now my daughter's turned informer, you know, she sort of said to me, like, you never admit when you're sad, do you, mum? And I was kind of stunned by that. I was quite angry when she said that because I was like, well, yeah, because like I'm a grown up and your mum. And of course I shouldn't be showing you when I'm upset. Mm -hmm. And then she was like, well, the thing is that that's what we watched you do. So we just thought it was embarrassing to admit you were sad. So we never said anything. And that was like a thunderbolt from the sky. It was like, oh, my God, of course. You think that parenting is what you tell kids when you do your, you know, your three brilliant speeches a year about this is how to be or this is what you must do or here are some morals for you to have. The kids <laughs> never remember any of that shit. I mean, your, your children will never come up to you and go, I really remember that inspiring speech you gave us and when we were stuck in that traffic jam about how to be an amazing person. They're just 90%, more than 90% parents. They're watching what you're doing and doing it. And that can be good. Like the first time I heard my oldest daughter having to ring someone in customer services and I heard her on the phone in the other room going, hello, I'm so sorry to trouble you, my darling, but I just needed to get a bit of advice. I hope you're not too busy. I was like, that's how I talk to people on customer services. She's learned to be good on the phone. Yes. But it can also be really bad stuff. And that was when I started to deep. Yeah. In my family, when I grew up, no one cared if you were sad. Like literally no one cared. Like you either made a joke about it or, well, that was it. You, you just would have to make your pain funny, which has obviously led to a fabulous career in being able to write about <laughs> humanity and the human experience, uh, making jokes about it for me. But it was also, you know, a terrible emotional template for me and all my siblings, which we've talked about and all got therapy for since. And then I'd gone and passed it on to my kids. I had literally gone, you don't be sad. We don't, I, I can remember saying when they were little in a, in a funny way that amused mm. me because I, I always felt like I was in a sitcom in my brain, but just going, oh, don't be sad. Sad's so boring. Mm. Wah! 
I thought it was a funny line. You know, I was brought up on musicals as well, where, you know, cheerful Judy Garland or cheerful Annie, orphan Annie in the musical Annie, they always look on the bright side and the sun will come out tomorrow and that's what gets them through. And to a certain extent, it will. But not when it's your only response to sadness and depression and anxiety is to always just pretend it's not happening, plaster on a smile and crack on. And so, yeah, so I've, you know, that's when you start going, wow, okay. That's I can see why, you know, mental illness isn't caused by parents. It's not parents' no. fault. I, I don't feel guilty about it, but the coping methods you're teaching any child, you do need to examine them quite closely because you might not even realise how screwed up you are. That's the great thing about having kids. You know, they, they're brought up in a new generation. They have new ways of talking about this stuff and they can turn around to you at some point and go, I think it's really screwed up that you never met your sad mum. And you have to go, yeah, no, you're right. And the idea that when we plastered on that, smile in the kitchen even though we were feeling low that they didn't see it anyway because then exactly. the water spilt and you lose it because there's some water totally. on the floor and it's like mm, is it about the water though <laughs> so it comes out yes um but so also they're it's... experts they know as well like we kid ourselves that we're just genius spies managing to cover up our emotions like james bond in a heated situation <laughs> yeah. the kids don't know children's number one expert topic beyond anything else is their parents because their survival from day one their survival rests on their parents they're watching everything you do they know when you're sad just for you know my daughter my daughter came in the room one day when i was she was 13 and just went you're really sad today aren't you mum and tired i went how do you know she was like you only ever wear that lipstick when you're sad and tired i was like shit like they are watching you. They know you. So they're the spies. You know, they're the they spies. Are. They are the spies. Um, they're James Bond. <laughs> so, I mean, if it's not too big a question, and obviously you've mentioned that you've had therapy, but if the best way, and I'm sure some other parents would relate to this, is is in that time when you're really in the storm, mm. you have to push down all those feelings and bottle them. How on earth do you take care of yourself in that time how do you not how do you stay strong for a sick child when it's going to make you sick well this is where like 90 percent of feminism would go and you just need to make time for you and like you just got to find those things and you know you've got to take care of yourself and put your oxygen mask on before you can help others and all that stuff and i come from the much more niche 10 percent of feminism that is like look let's get real sometimes you can't do that <laughs> I'm not going to put that as another thing on your to-do list that you need to have some self-care. There are times in a woman's life where she will not have time to look after herself. And we know that, especially if you're a sandwich carer and you've got small children and you've got your ageing parents as well that you're having to take care of and you've got a job on top of that. Like, I don't want women to think they're failing if they go, I I'm not finding time to take care of myself. It's like, yeah, these are the cards you've been dealt. I look you in the eye and I go, yeah. And this is, this is, I think, the most important thing for people who are going through awful things, to be able to just look them in the eye and go, this is shit, isn't it? I can see how shit and hard this is for you. And it's not that you haven't been clever enough to think of a new way out of this or to take care of yourself. This is your schedule. You're going through a terrible time. This will end eventually. You will get out of it. But, like, I'm not going to stand here and tell you that the thing you really need to do now is book yourself on a spa weekend. You don't have time for a spa weekend. <laughs> no one's going to let you go on a spa weekend. No one's going to come along and go, you look really stressed. I'm going to take you away on a spa weekend. That never happens. This is why women of my age tend to go a little bit, we tend to sort of go more into our witchy phases, I think. And we'll do things like we get dogs. And we, because the dog doesn't have a problem, the dog just loves you. The dog will eat anything, which is such a refreshing change. You've got a very ill child and you'll go for walks in the woods and you will hug a tree 
nearly every woman I know at this stage in their life who's got these kind of problems does this. And we're like, and we were going, why do we hug the trees? And it's like, because it's probably the only living thing we're going to encounter that day or that week that isn't going to ask us for money or cry <laughs> or want to sit on our knee or need a lift somewhere or have an argument with us. We're just going to hug that big old tree and it's just going to be a living thing that doesn't need anything from us. And there are just phases in your life where that's what's happening. And I want to say I see that, ladies. I, I totally acknowledge it. I get it. I promise this will end at some point. But, yeah, this is this is just one of those really horrible phases. You're, a, again, you know, all the metaphors. I think parenting, mothering is what war is to men. It's like, you know, there's no point in telling, you know, Wilfred Owen in the trenches, you just need to make some time for yourself. <laughs> kind of, you could just have a spa weekend away from the Somme. That'd really help you cope with what's coming next, Wilfred. There, there are no spa weekends in the trenches. You're in the trenches. Write some terrible poetry. That's about as near as you're going to get to some relief. <laughs> I think that's a really, really important point because this idea that you can do something sets up failure. It gives you yes. a should that you mm. didn't, you know, it's a bit like on a much sort of smaller level, the kind of nap when the baby naps. No one ever did that. It's not possible. Yes. You know, you're not going to have that time to, to take care of yourself. But did you manage to speak to friends or did it, was that a, a process? Did you start with that kind of shame spiral and embarrassment? Like, I can't admit this to even my closest mates or family or, or was that not there? I was no, I was very lucky. I've got I've got three very close um, female friends, and we've got like a, a constant sort of WhatsApp group. And so Who you we, dedicate the book, the book to yes, you? yes, my coven, Lauren, Nadia, and Sally, and um, <laughs> and we're just in constant communication with each other. And they've all gone through huge, awful life stuff as well, because this is what being a middle aged woman is. That's that's what more than a woman's about. This is the worst time of your life, <laughs> but it's also in so many ways the best. But you just need you know people around you, and. They did amazing things to help. Like Nadia would just, I'd just hear a noise outside the front door and she would have just left. She makes the most amazing dolls. So she would just have left a huge Tupperware container of doll on the doorstep and just gone away again. Like she was like, I know oh, you don't even have good. time to talk to me, but I'm just going to leave you food. And my friend Sally arranged an amazing weekend for my other daughter who wasn't ill because my friend Sally is so clever that she was like, all the attention is on your ill daughter and I want to help your non-ill daughter and arrange this incredible weekend for her. Uh, which I still have moved to tears about when I think about it. So I had friends around me, but like, in a way, this is one of the other big things I've realised about humans in general, and, you know, particularly about humans who are dealing with mental illness or depression, anxiety. Generally, people make you feel how they feel. So when you're dealing with someone who's really getting on your nerves and getting at you, they're trying to make you feel as angry and unstable as they are. And similarly, when you've got a child who's got an eating disorder, who's depression, anxious... They are trying to make you feel how they feel. And what they want to say all the time is, this is horrible. I am anxious. I am depressed. I feel terrible. I see no end to it. And that is how you will feel as a parent of that child. So all you ever want to do is say to people, this is horrible. I feel anxious and depressed and it feels like this will never end. And after a while, you get bored of hearing yourself say it. So, you know, I just every day say to my friends, it's all shit. And they'd go, mate, you're being incredible. And I felt seen and I felt loved, but... There's only so much your friends can do. This all sounds very dolorous, but it's just one of the, it's like walking in the rain up a really big hill. You're just walking one foot in front of the other and, you know, at some point you'll get there and you sort of, you know, you just have to sort of get your head down and get through it really. 
There's no magical wand. It's just one of those times where you're just going to be really, really stoic. And at the end of it, you get to pat yourself on the head and go, well done, you got through that. But at the time, it's just one foot in front of the other years. It really is. Must have really changed you, changed how you, your relationship with your daughters and your relationship with your own mental health, your ability to listen. You know, on your book tour, people must have come up and said, I see you and I've, I've been there too. And do you feel really changed? It has. I mean, this is where, you know, I'm always wary of sort of like hitting a big cliche or something that might have been embroidered on a cushion uh, <laughs> or that someone, someone on Etsy has put on a candlestick uh, and is trying to sell you. But um, you do learn an enormous amount from dealing with someone who is, you know, suicidally depressed and anxious. And my dealings with people, I, I definitely now, I know how to listen, like properly listen. I think we're very keen children, adults, anyone that we talk to, if someone comes to us in distress, we like to problem solve straight away. We do two terrible things. We either one, try and problem solve straight away. Have you tried this? Have you tried that? Call these people, ta da da ta Or we go, oh, something similar happened to me. And then we tell them a big anecdote from our life. You know when someone's done this to you, these are enraging things. <laughs> you just want them to listen. And similarly, when people are like offering you solutions and stuff, you'll have tried all of those. You're two steps ahead of them. You just need someone to listen to you and not offer a solution. It's like when you've got a really wet towel that you've taken out of the washing machine. Like if you put it straight into the tumble dryer, if you're straight away trying to come up with a solution for it, it's a waste of everybody's time and you'll burn out the motor on your tumble dryer. If you let it drip dry until it's just only slightly damp, before you put it in the tumble dryer, it works. And that's when someone comes to you full of the wetness and sadness, and they are a big wet towel of sadness, you just need to let them drip dry on a radiator for half an hour. That's you listening to them. Before finally, once they've said everything they need to say, you'll see their emotions have changed. Once they finally said all of their sadness, you can see, and I've seen scans of, of what happens, you would then turn into a different brain mode where you are then ready to discuss things or talk about ideas wow. or come up with solutions yourself. But if you're immediately trying to problem solve when someone just needs to talk to you about how sad they are, it's an incredibly frustrating experience for everyone. So I've learned to listen and watch for the signals that people give that they have finished speaking and they're ready to actually start talking. They've got into a different brain made, which is very good. And the other thing is that I've just really learned in my bones that everyone you meet is probably dealing with an enormous amount of shit that you can't see. And you talk to anybody for 20 minutes and they will tell you about someone they're caring for, something awful that's happening in their lives, some terrible pain they're in. And I've really learned that thing of just presuming everybody you come across is probably having a really bad day. You know, never presume you know, that someone who's really getting your tits or being an enemy or being obstructive, just treat them as if they have just come back from hospital hearing terrible news because the chances are they probably have, you know, they'll be plastering on their brave face. And those two things, I'm I now, I really am very aware of people's pain and I know how to listen to people in pain and pain doesn't scare me anymore. Sadness doesn't scare me anymore. I can sit with someone in pain who is sad and I'm not scared and I'm not trying to make them better and I'm not trying to get to the conclusion. I'm not trying to tell them a story about me. I just know that just sitting and listening and not being scared of sadness is the only viable thing that will possibly relieve that sadness. And that's a really amazing, feels like a bit of a magical power. We don't have enough people who know how to sit and listen to people in pain and acknowledge their pain. So that's the useful thing that I've taken from it. Well, last point, I just want to read. It's not in this paragraph, but there's a sentence later on. I just want to read it because I think it, it really speaks to what you've learned. Um, okay. And still, I do not do the simple, simple thing I should say. I can see how unhappy you are. It's okay to be unhappy. I'm not scared of it. I'll stay with you until it passes. 
I just think that's for me the my tattoo <laughs> for yes. how I'm gonna do my kids when they yeah go through what they will go through in this frightening world where our kids are anxious and depressed and we all we all need to remember just to stay with someone yeah and make sure that you that you're being the person you want them to be all the parental speeches don't matter in the end you know if you're sad let them see that you're sad because that then lets them know that they can be sad what we think is a weakness crying in front of our children gives them the ability to cry in front of you and Mm. you know that's good for all of us. You know, you get to tell people you're sad. Your children know that it's okay to be sad. We, we are so scared of sadness. You know, we are so scared of the idea of our children being sad. And in the same way, we're scared of our children being like dirty. But, you know, a bit of dirt on the knees never hurt anyone. And a child that can just cry and know that it can come to you and not be shamed and won't be told to put on a smile and crack on is a child that will grow up with one less problem. And it's good to cry together. You know, we now have crying afternoons. All of it, because I've got daughters, we all, all of our periods are synced. So once a month, it's just like we all just look at each other and go, we need to be on the sofa together. And we all sit on the sofa with the dog and we just cry. And then after 20 minutes, we feel light and refreshed and we'll watch RuPaul's Drag Race. And that is ultimately what I have learned from having a child with a terrible mental illness, that you all just need to cry and then watch some drag queens. <laughs> That's what Grey's Anatomy is for me, but I should try drag race as well oh it's such a cheerful thing it really is so jolly it's just like especially if you're raising teenage girls as well like you know because it's the gamification of femininity all of the things that they're you know that that whole kind of you're born naked and the rest is drag like kind of one doesn't Mm. isn't born a woman one becomes one every Mm. conversation that you want to have with your daughters about the performance of gender is there on RuPaul's Drag Race with amazing hair and great jokes oh come on (laughs) (laughs) Oh, thank you so much, Catelyn. That's I really appreciate that. I hope that's not kind of exhausting to. I oh know God, no! It's it before, lovely. No, it? because I haven't had a chance to talk about just this, just eating disorders in this kind of depth. Because we're usually sort of talking about everything, so it's just been. And you know, I'm so I'm so aware that like if you are dealing with it as a parent, there are so few. I in, if I'd heard someone saying these things six years ago seven years ago it would have blown my mind like kind of Mm. it's so hard to find this information I'm just aware with people I've spoken to when I've done other work on this there's so many mothers particularly who blame themselves and I wonder Mm. if I can just ask what you say to people who cannot get past that they think it's their fault so the most useful thing for me because I still partly from ego I guess and partly because as a mother you blame yourself for everything I was still convinced that I must have given my daughter an eating disorder until I went and got therapy and just sobbed I don't think I even made a word the first therapy session we had and she just told me over and over and she deals in families that are family members who've got eating disorders and mental illness she was just like this is not your fault it is a disease it is not your fault And for as long as you have this feeling that it is your fault, your child is going to pick up on that. And the more importantly, the eating disordered voice in your child's head is going to pick up on that and it's going to use it as a weapon against you. She was clever because she knew that the one thing that will make you do something as a mother is being told that it might be damaging your child. Particularly as women, we are so programmed to feel guilty about everything and feel like everything is our fault, like that is our default, that the only way we can finally give ourselves permission to not feel guilty anymore is when we are told categorically if you carry on feeling guilty and like this is your fault it is going to make things so much worse for your child 
the best thing you can do for your child right now is do whatever work you need in order to know categorically that this is not your fault. You did not cause this illness. You need to be all hands on deck and not quietly beating yourself up that this is your fault. Because, you know, if you're self-sabotaging yourself thinking that this is your fault, you're not going to be in the top quality condition you're going to need to be able to fight this disease side by side with your child. So, yeah, it is just anybody who needs to hear that out there now. Imagine I'm looking into your eyes. It Mm. is not your fault. Go and Google it. Google, is this my fault? And if you Google anything else as a woman with, is this my fault? The answer will come back, yes. (laughs) But, but, But the science is very firm on this in this instance. No, it is not your fault. Thank you for listening to Paige. If you've got a moment, I'd love it if you could rate and review this episode to help me get the word out and keep the show going. You can also find great photos and information about next episodes over on Twitter and Instagram at Abbyholic. Oh, and please subscribe. Did I say that? Please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Page is a Good Tape production, produced by me, Abby Hollick. Original music by Paddy Jervis and Rob Sell for Torch and Compass. Sound engineer support from Hunter Charlton and Chris Sharp. Graphic design from Tim Hughes. Thanks, team. <laughs> <laughs>